This week on the Eldritch Lawcast, we take a grab bag of listener emails talking the best uses for party followers and if you can use D&D as an educational tool. All that and more right now. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of the Eldritch Lawcast, the number one D&D and tabletop RPG podcast in the world. Never going to stop making that claim. My name is Ben Byrne, and I'm here, as always, with Dale Kingsmill, James Hake, Sean Merwin. Sean, if you had a familiar, what would your familiar be? Probably a skink. Uh, just because I like saying skink. We have so many yeah. skinks living around my house and I, it's just this bizarre ecosystem because I guess we got bugs and the, the skinks like eating the bugs and the kookaburras like to come for the skinks. So we have this whole thing going on, but um, they've recently gotten really brave and they just keep coming into the house and I have to catch them. I like the idea that a skink, a skink should have two hit points and if it ever takes only <laughs> one damage, it loses the tail and then keeps going. Yeah, Exactly. That's fair. That's fair. Dale, what would your uh, familiar be if you had a familiar? Um, I like to run familiars as being like a little piece of your soul made manifest. So um, for me, I think it would probably be like um, a tropical parrot, like like a macaw. Like it looks like a lot of fun, but if you had to live with one, it would probably be pretty loud and annoying. Um, so, you know, that that's my vibe. <laughs> okay, that's fair. That's an interesting take on familiars as well. I like that. James, what about you? What would your familiar be? Hmm, I feel like at this point it would be some kind of sentient plant. I feel like it would have to be, you know. <laughs> uh, but if, it, if I had to stick with the usual animal archetypes, I would be a very classic sort of guy and go with a cat. I love cats Ooh, too much. Yeah. They're such perfect familiars. I mean, they're, they're the archetypal one for a reason. They, they're intelligent. They, they are able to pick things up, bring them around. They're, they're the perfect little witches familiar. They're a bit ominous. And demonic, yeah. <laughs> They'll sort of sit around a corner and just, like, look at you from here. Yeah. yeah. yeah why is it looking at me like that? <laughs> <laughs> you know that it's hexing you the entire time. And then and then they love you and they're soft and you pick I them up them. and they purr. And Sorry, compose yourself, Hake. This week we are recording in advance. So this is going to be no news this week, but we are going to do a, a sort of listener email uh, grab bag Woo! of different emails that have come through. If email you have roundup. Email roundup. If you have a, a question that you want to send through, you can send it to podcast at ghostfiregaming.com or you can also comment uh, on YouTube if you're listening to this on YouTube and we go through them uh, and I try to grab a few and I do keep them. We have a few emails that have been in the email bag for a while now. I don't know why the emails are in a bag, but that's where I keep them. Um, anyway, starting with uh, an email, or this was actually a Discord message that came through to me um, from Joe Bob the Mind Flayer, which is uh, sort of a, a weird in-joke from a previous podcast that I had. Um, uh, and Joe Bob is asking about, uh, I think... Uh, Play, uh, party followers more so than familiars, but I thought I would mix in familiars to this uh, question, talking about using the sidekick rules from Tashes to kind of level up party followers over time. Um, have we run party followers before? Do we feel like they're a good idea? Um, uh, James, what's your general approach to, to having NPCs that follow the party around or a sort of honorary party members? Hmm. This is, uh, this is an interesting thing because, okay, the short answer is, yes, they're great. Yes, use sidekicks. Done. Um, more <laughs> detailed, 
is I, I love having NPCs that accompany the party. Uh, it's very easy for them to become overwhelming. Uh, Out of the Abyss is a great example of having too many NPCs kind of tagging along with the party at once um, because they're just a hassle for the DM to run. Mm. It's something that we tried very hard to avoid in Call of the Netherdeep uh, because we wanted, there's a rival party and essentially those are just five NPCs that are tagging along if you wind up being friends with them. Uh, so we wanted people to, even if you are friendly with the rival party, the rival party has their own sort of goals and ambitions that they're following. And so they, they won't ever stick around for too long. Essentially, if there's one NPC at a time that's kind of involved with the party on a, on a traveling basis, that's good. Once you even get to two, you're kind of in the danger area because suddenly you're, you're, you're talking with yourself if you're the DM. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you can have the NPCs become over-invested in the story while the PCs are just along for the ride. It's just like every red flag starts cropping up. And uh, psychic rules are a great way to handle them because they're mechanically uh, robust but not overwhelming. Someone remind me how the sidekick rules work. <laughs> You, uh, this is going off the top of my head. The rules I think are in Tashes or Joe Bob has mentioned that they're in Tashes. And mm -hmm. I believe basically um, you pick a stat block that I think is meant to be like a half or a quarter CR. Um, and you choose whether you want it to be like a mage or a fighter or a sneaky rogue type character archetype. And then they gain sort of like class abilities based on whatever archetype you choose. And then they can level up and uh, gain better abilities as they level up. You can choose the spells that you want for them. Although I think Tasha's does have like a select list of um, spells so that you like, you know, this is the evocation mage. This is the healer mage. This is the whatever. So you don't have to mm. go through and do all the work of choosing the spells if you don't want to, if you just kind of want to grab um, the, the stencil. So it is basically like stenciling um, class abilities onto NPCs so that they can level up with the party, but also be a little bit more useful than, you know, a commoner with a pitchfork coming up and, and stabbing right. people. They are, like, just speaking from personal experience, I used them relatively recently. It was a short-lived campaign. It was only maybe three or four sessions, but there were only two player characters. So I was like, maybe having a, a, a sort of NPC that follows them, especially because neither of them were healers, might be helpful just to uh, help with encounter balance, especially if they're coming up against a large group of bandits or whatever it happens to be. Um, and they seem robust. They seem to work well. And it's kind of cool as a DM to have someone to level up and, and change the stat block of. It's just a mild pain in the butt because every couple of sessions, you got to go back and rewrite the stat block if they do level up. So that can be a minor hassle. But other than that, they're great. The, the Essentials Kit used them for in that adventure in uh, Dragon of Ice Spire Peak, used them pretty well. And for the follow-up adventures that we wrote for that, that are only available on D&D Beyond uh, for some reason, but we uh, gave rules for leveling those up to higher uh, levels because I think it goes up to almost level 13, those three adventures mm. that follow. Uh, but... I used them when we were. I was running uh, that adventure for my wife and my daughter because, two, like you said, two players, rather than creating a whole full PC to go along with it, it's very simple to use. Uh, you know, first edition introduced this concept of hirelings, and it was one of the only official rules that were in the game for something like this. 
but it made it it made it interesting when the characters began to buy temples or make wizards towers or buy strongholds or thieves guild uh, because then your hirelings would take care of that and we tried to in the acquisitions incorporated hardcover book we tried to sort of foster that feeling of you own this franchise of acquisitions incorporated you run it but you also are adventuring so you need to have a staff back at your home and so we put in a lot of rules that would help facilitate that so it's not like you're adventuring with those folks although you can uh but they're they're sort of the the story back home and you and we loved our uh, hirelings so much that when we finished that campaign, the hirelings became the new party and they went <laughs> off on their own uh, to Icewind Dale oh, because, you know, we just wanted to tell those stories next. And it was amazing. It, it's fun. So good. Uh, but one of the I actually used something like this for uh, fables, Mr. Hake, because in uh, spoilers, uh, you you meet the ditchers, mm. and they are there, and you can do things with them. And so I was going back and forth with how do I do this without overwhelming the players. And what I ended up doing was for the big final fight, I gave them the stat blocks for the, the ditchers and said, they will help you if you choose to use them, and you can run their stat blocks. But I am going to roll their hit points, and I'm not going to tell you what those hit points are. <gasps> And if they reach zero hit points, they die. There's no death saves. They're just gone. So use them if you... And not many of them survived the final battle of that particular episode of The Fable, which worked out exactly as I was hoping. But it was really fun because they wanted to keep them alive, but yet they didn't want them to be alive enough to really worry about keeping them alive. And that sure. sort of That's told me... A, what kind of story they want to tell and be the kind of people who my home group is. <laughs> that uh, is perfect. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly how that fable uh, ought to have gone. You know, if I could go back and insert that little do it like this into episode one of, of Citadel, I would. Because that, that's exactly what I want to happen. I, I, want, I wanted the players to, in this dark fantasy environment... Uh, I wanted them to kind of become a little bit evil and treat the other uh, people around them as resources to be used. Uh, that's mm -hmm. the exact sort of moral nastiness that a situation like this wants to wants to plunge into the player characters. Well, they did. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. Yes, they did become bad people. Um, <laughs> I also really like what Sean was saying. Um, I am a big fan of followers that are is sort of in the background. Um, so two of my favorite NPC sort of characters that come to mind from actual plays are Jarrett from Campaign 1 of Critical Role, mm. who stays behind and sort of, you know, is the main guard at, uh, at uh, Castle Grayskull. Uh, and... <laughs> Uh, then in The Chain by MCDM, Angel, who's kind of this um, this spy master who works for the the sort of mercenary company that the uh, that the player characters are the captains of. 
uh, or the senior officers. And they just kind of, they are used as these little background elements, these tools that occasionally pop up in adventure, but mostly find their use sort of in downtime, uh, which I think is just really fun. And maybe that's because the only part of Assassin's Creed Revelations I liked was the part where you uh, gathered all your new assassin followers and you would send them on missions. You would say, look, mm. I'm too busy right now. I can't go to, you know, Italy right now because I'm in Constantinople. You need to go and handle that. Oh, we need to deal with this thing that the Templars are doing elsewhere. And I just love the, in the, the entire system that lets it feel like you are in charge of something and it's a big deal. And that's what your NPC followers are for. Mm. Um, because uh, Partly also because I, um, I'm a messy dungeon master and if i'm running a bunch of npcs alongside the adventure for the party I, it it becomes like a gumbo of there's a lot happening mm. Mm, delicious mm, gumbo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I spoke on an earlier episode a little bit about you know running large scale combat and talked about how the npcs mm. basically mm. had a value and a special skill associated with them so that the party could send you know the assassin off to assassinate someone or they could send the assassin off to lead the assault against you know a well-fortified area the assassin's probably going to do less good at that specific job because that's not where their skill set is. And um, there's a there's a kind of mass effect to uh, approach to it where, you know, this console needs to be hacked, so you need to pick a hacker to be able to do it. And this needs to be assaulted, so you need to get a, a tank to go and do that. Um, and so that allowed the party exactly as you're describing. And in fact, probably inspired by Assassin's Creed Brotherhood and Revelations, where you pick your dudes, you send them off, and then there's, I make a role, you know, at some point, probably even between, sessions about how successful that thing is and then they learn the next session yes the assassination was successful or no the assassin died like in the attempt or you know whatever whatever happened to happen to them i find player characters attitude to npcs to be really interesting though or party follower npcs sidekicks specifically to be really interesting because i've had the gamut between like really cares for this individual, don't want them to die, please, we must protect them, stay back in every encounter to this guy's so annoying, I don't know why he's following us around, he never helps in any of the combat encounters, he's just completely useless, why do we keep this individual around? Um, and so it's interesting, you know, the, the learnings that I've tried to take away from the different approaches different groups have, I suppose, is A, everybody's different. Every group of players is going to be different and that's fine. Um, but B, if you're on a pirate ship, explain to the players that the pirates are there, the crew are there, they're in the background, they're sort of the background orcs fighting against whatever's happening uh, in the background of the combat encounter. They're not doing nothing, I swear, because the amount of player characters that I've had just going like, what are the crew doing? We're being attacked by a, by a you know, a, 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 a swamp monster and they're not doing anything. I'm like, no, I swear they're there, they're helping. Um, have you, you just found- just don't have 50 minis to put on this map. Yeah, exactly that. They're it, keeping it, the boat from sinking. Yeah, I mean, it does become laborious keeping lots of NPCs NPCs around and I you know as a dungeon master most often try not to have NPC party followers because I don't want to have to like they just get forgotten about I forget they're even there the player characters will be like well what is such and such think and I'm like oh uh yeah I guess such and such thinks x thing um 
But the one thing that they are particularly useful for or could be potentially useful for is, and, and Joe Bob mentions this in their message, um, around, you know, can they be used to set the tone? Can they be used to, to maintain the story? Can they be used to kind of help direct the party if they get lost? What are some sort of, you know, narrative or practical uses that you've found for NPCs or party follower sidekicks um, that has been really effective in a campaign that you've been running? I'm going to talk about the rivals from Netherdeep because I can't get enough of talking about them. They're not quite this uh, they're, because they're, they're not really party followers. They're different from that. They're party antagonists. They're uh, occasional friends. They're, they're more nebulous than just we're tagging along. But uh, when creating that adventure, a, a main uh, aspect of the sort of emotional storytelling there is uh, getting the party to think about uh, what it is they've seen along the course of the adventure. Uh, because there's some kind of horrific stuff that goes on in Basazan and the Netherdeep and stuff like that. And uh, were you in the real world, the adventuring would take a toll on you uh, psychologically. Uh, and Kind of the first moment where that becomes a thing is mild spoilers for a fight in Chapter 3 of Netherdeep. When you reach Bazozan for the first time, there's a monster attack. Creatures, uh, gibbering mouthers, have just burst out of the Betrayer's Rise. And the uh, Aurora Watch soldiers that are there and live in all of this kind of have this thousand-yard stares. They're like, all right, the bells are ringing. Let's get the swords and pikes. And you and the rival party are both there for the very first time. You're like, holy this guy's getting his arm eaten off by a living pile of flesh. <laughs> um, and so once that fight is over and you find uh, the rivals again, they're just kind of like staring into their mugs at the tavern. And uh, of some of the many things that I, I wanted to do with those rivals, I wanted the players to like look at, at them and think, is this something that I would want to roleplay? Is this an element of my character's emotional experience that I want to bring to this table? And if not, and you want to be you know, like heroic and swashbuckling and all that, then that's great. Go, go ahead. You don't have to worry about the sort of emotional damage that you would pick yeah. up along the course of the adventuring. But the emotional damage you pick up is such a core part of Netherdeep. Uh, I, I really want the player characters to at least think about if they would pick up those emotional scars from doing what they're doing. And that's the first time when the rivals kind of mirror that behavior at you. Like children. I mean, children learn to mirror behavior by seeing people. We have literal mirror neurons in our heads. And often role-playing game players, I mean, you know, they're not children. Yeah, uh, I was about to say, yeah, basically it, it, children. <laughs> sure. <laughs> but it's, it's like uh, often they haven't really been exposed to, oh, this is a thing I can do. Uh, I, I didn't know I could do this in a role-playing game before. Everyone has those beautiful aha moments where it's like, I had no idea this was even a possibility that was available to me. Yeah. And I just wanted to put, push that little possibility in front of them with some NPCs that by this point they'd come to know. I yeah. love that because I, I feel like I'm always looking for opportunities to get players to, to stop and debrief about what's happened mm. because um, it can be really tricky. I don't know what it is, but there is this bizarre instinct in game that doesn't exist in real life where something wild will happen just totally off the wall and you, there's never any chance that people sit down and just talk about that as their characters. You don't even have to do it as your character, but, you know, just like in game have this element of like, what 
what just went down. I mean, like the other night, I got stuck in town barefoot after midnight and couldn't get into my car because it was locked into a garage, right? And someone had to come and drive into town in the middle of the night and get me. And that ultimately was a very mild experience compared to anything any D&D <laughs> adventurer has ever experienced. But I'm just saying, after that, we sat down and debriefed for like an hour. We were just like, I, oh man, how did I end? How did this happen? What happened at the start? You know, you go through all this stuff. You talk about these weird things that happen in life. And it's strange mm -hmm. that in D&D, you don't, that there's not that same like instinctive drive to be like, <laughs> wait a minute, we just fought a mimic. Like, <laughs> Yeah, I, I think there's a, you know, the double-edged sword is not quite the the expression, maybe two sides of the coin. I think there's a an expectation to be set up there in a session zero because I, I've run uh, Tomb of Annihilation twice up to the point of Omu and Omu uh, colloquially for me is known where campaigns go to die because just for whatever reason, the campaign has ended right as I've entered the city twice. But in both of those campaigns, they had the party follower Kawasha, I believe his name is. Um, and he's like a druid who's meant to be a guide through the jungles. And so the utility that he provided the party was that he, um, you know, they didn't have to make um, exploration checks or navigation checks as they explored the jungle because Kawasha largely knows it quite well. So for as long as he's with the party, he can guide them. But he's not a combatant um, to keep mystery to the campaign. Whenever they'd find like ruins or something within the jungles, they'd be like, oh, what is this Kawasha? And he'd be like, I don't know. I don't go into these places. And it's how I've stayed alive for, you know, however long exploring these jungles. <laughs> so he's not a combatant. He doesn't help in fights. He does demand payment for guiding them around. But that's essentially all he really does. And then he'll provide opinions and expertise when, whenever he's able to. And in those two parties, one group really embraced him. He actually ended up as a love interest of one of the party members um, and uh, they were crushed with his ultimate fate, um, <laughs> which I can talk about in a moment. But the other group hated him. They just thought he was a complete wet blanket and I tried to play Tomb of Annihilation like it was, you know, a horror setting. Like there's undead wandering around in these jungles and dinosaurs will eat you. And there's an ancient civilization that was once here and has now disappeared. Um, and Kawash is like freaking out about all this stuff. He's like, I've never been in those ruins. There are ghosts in there. I'm not going in there. Are you crazy? Like, what? oh my God, I'm watching corpses walk around through the trees. I've never seen this before. Like he's going out of his mind. And one party were like, oh yeah, wow, this is... Uh, and one party were like, get over it, Kawasha. Like, come on, man. Like, It's just a bunch of zombies. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So there, there's, you know, oh. I think setting expectations yeah, with the players up. ahead of time is useful. So they don't just assume that the party followers are just, you know, uh, cowards, basically. Yeah, I think I think there are some tips that maybe we could give for people that are going to use them in games. Uh, I think the first one is if they're going to be combatants, give them to the players to play. Yeah. Uh, which we sort of mentioned before. But that keeps them in mind for players. They don't tune out when you as the DM run this character. They take a more uh, active approach, especially if you pass it around to different players throughout the sessions. Uh, even if they're non-combatants, put them in initiative and have them do something. During combat, mm. whether, you know, say something funny, uh, you know, is that, uh, where'd you learn to swing a sword, right? Uh, you know, something <laughs> just to just to remind the players and yourself that they are still there is is helpful. And you don't need to, to take up 
minutes with their turns. Just say something. You've just reminded me, actually, one fun thing that also occurred in Tomb was there's another party follower. Uh, I think her name's, and I might pronounce this incorrectly, Zandala in the original uh, adventure. I changed her name to Astrid because I wanted to have, to have a sort of Nordic feel. Um, but she's, spoilers for Tomb of Annihilation, um, she... She basically is trying to manipulate the party and she pretends to be like, oh, oh, I'm just like a girl who needs help through the jungle and maybe you would help me. But actually she's hunting for the ring of winter, I think, that um, somebody has. So she's a she's a necromancer and and or maybe I might be conflating her. Anyway, oh, the, the point thing. being, yeah. um, she uh, I, I gave her stat block to the party to play, but I gave them a reduced stat block. So she can do things like cast fireball. She can fly. She has all these extra abilities, but I gave them a stat block that didn't have all of that listed. And it worked really well in convincing them that she really wasn't that good because they thought her, they took her stat block to be gospel. This is what she's capable of. She can't do any more than this. So that's, you know, who she is. And so when the twist came and I was like, no, 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 this is what she's capable of. Um, it was quite effective. They, they had no idea. Love that. Love that. I mean, yeah, that's. It's interesting how misdirection can can work in your favor or against you, depending on how how you present it. Some players hate being tricked like mm. that. They 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 love to have as much information as possible, and they might treat what you did as outright lying to them because they they treat game material as you know infallible as true. Mm. Uh, their character sheets don't lie. So, uh, of course, the character sheet you gave to them has to be literally true as well. But nothing in, nothing in the game rules says that's true. No, it's absolutely. It's totally a, a, a mental construct that some people have and some people don't. I think uh, another good use of the Tash's um, rules, in ter- uh, the psychic rules, in terms of using... Um, I agree with what you said before, Sean, that giving the players the stat block to to run during combat also takes a mental load off the, the game master when they're running the game. But the other thing is allowing the players to kind of run this NPC the way they want. And so, you know, they might start as a farmer, a farm boy that's following the party who has dreams of becoming a, a knight or apprenticing with one of the party members. And then they can choose, all right, I want him to become a mage. I'm going to start training him. I'm the party wizard. So he, when he levels up let's give him some spells or i'm the party rogue i'm going to start making him my apprentice so giving them choice with the npc making them an aspect almost like a a shared party resource but an aspect of how they can develop the the overall story of the campaign is also just a a cool idea that i haven't necessarily played with i also uh like handing off the NPCs. I like the idea of handing off the NPCs to the players because uh, if the NPC rolls badly on attacks, <laughs> suddenly it's not this character's useless. It's like, oh man, my dice hate me today. So uh, there's a little bit less animosity, ideally. Yeah. Um, it's interesting to think about this as well. Like you meshed uh, familiars into this, uh, you know, cauldron of, of discussion, but also thinking about uh, beast companions mm. for the ranger, because there is an interesting thing, because we're talking now about this idea of like, give interesting choices to the players in how they develop these NPC characters, which is a great idea. And, you know, give the NPC characters like one or two cool things that they can do, uh, you know, if they're an assassin or if they're a soldier or whatever. Um, but you look at the the beast companions and 
there's there's very little of that in how they develop, which is rough for something that is a core subclass. You know, this is this is a thing that will stick with you the entire way through from level three to level 20 if you're playing that long. Um, but there's very little development and change when it comes to the, the core uh, Beastmaster beast, um, which I think is interesting just to see how it's different from an NPC when in a lot of ways it maybe shouldn't be. Like if you group everything under followers, mm. basically the same role. What would you change? What do you think you would want what to would see? What would I change? Well, I yeah. have a video about it, Ben. Uh, <laughs> there you go. Set you right up. Just knock it out of the park. <laughs> I actually don't remember what the video is called. It's called Beastmaster Redux or something. I, I don't know. I don't know what I called it, but I did a... Um, I basically on a flight back from uh, LA one time, I, I hate flying. I'm bad at flying. And uh, for the first time ever, I had Wi-Fi on the flight. Ooh. And to keep myself sane... I uh, was asking Twitter questions about, like, what is your fantasy? When you think about being a Beastmaster Ranger, what's the fantasy of that? And the core traits were wanting to have teamwork with your animal companion and wanting to train them. So I um, I sort of rebuilt the, and it's, I mean, it's imperfect, as is everything, but um, I rebuilt the Beastmaster to be a little bit more like choosing maneuvers for um, for a, a fighter battlemaster. Uh, and you could just choose different things that were all sort of two-part, you know, maneuvers that you could do with your your beast companion. And mm. uh, yeah, I don't you know. know. I like the the idea of like I I chose to to train my bear to do this. Our mutual friend James Intracasso and the oh, fine yes. folks at MCDM made a full class about uh, being a. a beast companioned person what's the beast the beast, the beast heart, heart yeah. the beast heart beast heart I, yeah. I haven't had a chance to look at it but it sounds really cool uh i honestly i think that the beast heart would fit really well in uh grim hollow mm. uh i think i think it'd be really cool to see uh to see someone using that mcdm class in a grim hollow game i think there's a barbarian subclass in the grim hollow player's guide which oh, has player's an, guide. an animal companion and it gets like a stat block i'm not oh, sure how the, it evolves the, the but... like spectral animal companions yeah those yeah, are cool. yeah the guardian and yeah. the something something yeah um, that definitely does take some of the pressure off of one of the hardest points of the beastmaster which is your fuzzy little guy can get brutally stabbed and die horribly <laughs> fully murdered yeah yeah which is you know just resummon spirit that's a great it. way to do it but that's why i say beastmaster is so good in grim hollow because you expect things to die brutally frequently in this sort of genre <laughs> For sure. The other resource, it's kind of obscured behind me. I don't know if it can be seen in my frame, but is uh, Stibble's Codex of Companions oh, Stibbles. Uh, by Logan Reese, yeah, yeah. um, Runesmith, uh, has uh, not only an entire like monster manual, basically, of different types of uh, familiars from elementals to undead. Yeah, I was what- thinking of that when James was saying that your, that your familiar would be a plant. That's what I was yeah. thinking. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the little bonsai dude. Yeah. Or I love the uh, the denticles, which are just, they're undead, but they're basically just a collection of teeth, uh, which I think is hilarious. Horrible, <laughs> <laughs> horrible. But uh, there are rules in there for, so, you know, not just uh, enhancing your companion's capabilities, but also like building your bond with your companion um, and, uh, you know, leveling them up, leveling up them up that way. Um, the one other thing that I wanted to mention with with party followers NPCs is they can fill a gap if you've got a campaign that has like something 
that it kind of needs thematically. And I'd be cautious about giving this advice because I don't know, reasons, but basically I wrote an adventure. It was called Vault of the Living Flame. And the idea was that the party are in this frozen mountainous range and they're uncovering clues about the mythology of uh, this culture, which happens to be Titans or um, Goliaths. But I called them Titans because I wasn't sure if I was allowed to use the word Goliath. Um, and their kind of connection to frost giants and their mythology and the stories that they told down through their culture and how those stories have changed over time. So they're finding murals and they're finding ancient carvings and they're finding old books and things that tell these stories. And the as the players find these, they've got to sort of piece them together. What I gave them was a party follower, Juniper Longstride, that's what it was, she was a gnome. And her purpose was basically, she's an explorer, she's hired the party to escort her to uncover this ancient vault of treasure. Um, everything's written in giant. So, because that's the language that the Frost Giants and the Titans would have used. So, basically, she was there to be able to translate just in case Giant had slipped through the gaps as a language that any of the party members had taken. But the cautionary tale or the just the... the um, the one thing I would mention with that is that Juniper never chose the direction that the party were going to take. She was like... In theory, the the person who had started the expedition, she was the one who had hired everybody, and often the party would ask her what she wanted to do, but it was really important not to make her the driving force of the campaign. She wasn't choosing what to go look at next. She was just there to help if the party ever got stuck and went like, oh, well, maybe have you considered this or maybe we should look at this as a way of the DM being able to give clues in game if the party ever got stumped with something. Uh, one of the one of the most significant uh, hint giving NPCs I ever had, uh, I intentionally made didn't not to follow the party. Um, this guy's from Waterdeep Dragon Heist. His name is Vincent Trench. He's a private Ooh. eye who lives in uh, the player character's neighborhood of Trollskull Alley. And he has a dark secret, but that's not important. Uh, what is important <laughs> is that... Well, now we want to know! <laughs> <laughs> that's not important. Anyway. Well, not important. Anyway. <laughs> well, the, the thing is, he's, he's very, very good at gathering information. He's, you know, he's a private detective. He's got that noirish feel. He fits right into the city. And if the players want something, uh, want to find something out, they can hire him. And he will go ahead and, and uh, then it's up to the DM to, to, you know, to come back with what he finds out. And sometimes, you know, if the players ask about something that's completely unrelated to the campaign, it's like, will you trail so-and-so? That's a side quest opportunity. But a DM could be like, I didn't find out anything about uh, the guy who you think is a suspect in all of this, you know, Mr. So-and-so. But I did notice while I was doing my investigating that you were being shadowed by an agent of the Xanathar or something like that and sort of subtly guide them back onto the track of the story that you want them to take. And the players paid gold for this information. <laughs> they had the moment. that th It was their choice to ask for the hint. And so it's not like you as the DM are kind of wrenching control from the shape of the campaign away from them. Mm. They wanted to know more. They paid money to know more. And now you're giving them what they want. Mm. 
Nice. You're just nudging it into also being what you want at the same time. <laughs> this question from Joe Bob is great because it gets right to the heart of uh, some really problematic potential situations with NPCs in general and with NPCs that are on the side of the characters specifically. So, you know, escort quests are one of those areas that are very problematic because the whole focus is protecting this NPC, but they have no control of that NPC. And they mm. might not even know what the rules are specifically for protecting that NPC. Does it work like a character where they get three death saves if they're uh, reduced to zero hit points? Or is it like a monster where if it reaches zero hit points, it's dead? So if you do things like that, as a game master, you need to be very clear with your players what those parameters are, both in terms of the mm. rules and in terms of how those decisions that the character would make are made. Uh, and if they are a tool, if they are a storytelling tool, then you need to keep the agency for that yourself as the game master, rather than handing it over to the player, only to then awkwardly have to take it back uh, when you know mm. the decision that they make is not something that the character would do, or that you want that uh, NPC to have happen to them, so it's cool. it's it's fraught. It's a situation fraught with peril, which is why it's such a topic that we could discuss for an entire episode. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say <laughs> grab bag. Uh, it's one email this episode. Yeah. Well, speaking of other emails, because <laughs> we may as well move on, uh, we did get an email from, and this one's been sitting in our uh, mailbag for a little while, so I do apologise to Hazen, uh, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, who mentions uh, using tabletop RPGs as an educational tool. Um, uh, they're talking specifically about using tabletop RPGs like D&D to teach children about morality and uh, letting them explore uh, morality through, you know, is it good to um, kill goblins or is it good to, you know, use violence as a way to solve problems or is it, um, you know, a whole, whole host of different things. Um, has anybody had any experience with this using D&D as an educational tool, whether it's with children or with uh, another group of people? I just don't feel qualified to answer this question. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking at Sean who teaches a class on tabletop RPGs, which is closer than anything yes. I've done. <laughs> well, it's th there's two different questions here. There's using there's using role playing games to teach about role playing games. Then mm. there's using role playing games to teach about other things. And morality mm. <laughs> is a whole other ball of wax that you can really g get into some interesting situations because you know. The game itself, D&D, &D, violence is generally not a way to resolve conflict in our lives. I think you know most people can agree that it's not optimal uh, to do that. <laughs> that's it. That's but, the exact phrase. Not optimal. <laughs> right. But you know, 90% of the D&D &D books that we buy and read are about violence or things that we are going about to do violence to. Yeah. Uh, so to try to teach nonviolence using a game that, you know, is about hitting things with swords and, and spells, there might be other role-playing games that would be more useful uh, to, to teach about those things. But, you know, the, I think the way we, we learn morality is, is by seeing the things around us rather sure. than actually doing the things ourselves. 
So while you, I'm sure that there are good, yes, I'm, I'm sure there are good lessons that could be taught, but I don't, I can't say that D and D specifically is a great way to teach morality. Maths, sure, uh, you know, <laughs> spatial relationships, sure, mapping, wonderful, wonderful way. Mm. Uh, mm. Low charts, English got it. and and languages, great mythology. Oh yeah. But uh, but eh, morality, I I would stay clear of that, especially with the, some of the players I played with. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wow, that is true. Uh, I have run the gamut as well. Yeah, this question, I said it, it sat, sat in a, my mail inbox for a little while because, you know, as we've touched on and uh, Hazen brings up a couple of topics that, yeah, I, I don't think that we're specifically equipped to deal with on this podcast. But as someone who uh, used to be an educator and also used to teach drama uh, to children, um, D&D does kind of sit in that similar place where it teaches maybe more so than... Um, more so than morality necessarily is it has the potential to teach empathy. Um, it's definitely a, mm. a teaching tool that you would use to teach, you know, numeracy and literacy because it encourages children to read and it encourages them to engage with mathematic problems. It encourages um, problem solving as a group um, and so teaches children how to work together and that they won't necessarily always get their own way within a group situation, but how can they collaborate to solve a problem? So there's definitely a lot of... Um, you know, passive educational benefits to teaching, uh, you know, children or, or exposing them to role-playing games such as Dungeons and Dragons. And you can put them in situations where, like, yes, D&D is a game about killing monsters, it's a game about killing goblins, but you put them in a situation where it's like, all right, this goblin has told you everything they know willingly, um, uh, do you let them go or do you now kill them like you've killed the rest of the goblins? And it doesn't, you know, you don't need to get into the deep morals. You don't need to feature, you know, questionable uh, themes within your campaign with children. You want to keep it appropriate. But just that, you know, simple question, the abstract of the goblin being killed or the goblin being released because they will he were helpful. Uh, I think it can be a useful tool, um, you know, for teaching, uh, you know, some semblance of empathy or morality, um, but, yeah, I don't know. I kind of, I don't want to delve too much. The, the short answer is like, yes, but I don't want to delve too much deeper into it just because I don't necessarily have like studies in front of me to be able to refer to. So I don't want to entirely shoot from the hip. Uh, James, you look like you want to say something. I've, I've been just kind of turning over why I don't really feel qualified to answer this question. I think it's this. It's because I really think of the characters in my D&D game as characters in a story. And I don't morally judge characters and stories because they're things that an author made up to tell a story. I love it when fictional characters do absolutely reprehensible things when it's interesting from a storytelling point of view. I, I love it. I love bad characters. <laughs> they're so fun. Um, and I, I love it when like the good guys, the, I love when the protagonists have <laughs> deeply, deeply entrenched foibles. Uh, and, and if you start getting sort of morally involved in your D&D characters, it's not the end of the world. I, a lot of D&D characters are sort of self-inserts, even only partially. And so you can kind of examine what your own moral instinct would be in that way. 
But I like D&D more when you can really separate yourself from your character's self and kind of just really explore someone who you would normally have only at best arm's length to mm. when you compare yeah. yourself to them. I suppose that's why I like this switch from the word morality to the word empathy, right? Mm. Because I, mm-hmm. I feel like I, I would say that I'm, I'm quite similar. I love, you know, good characters who make terrible choices because it makes sense for who they are, their background, the situation, all those. I love exploring that stuff. Um, and I do think that that is an exercise in empathy. It is it is an exploration of this, this empathetic understanding of why the person would make that choice. Um, and that kind of, to me, by necessity, to some degree, it, it puts morality aside. This this you know neb- this nebulous question of what is morality and you know what is good and what is bad. It kind of puts that aside and it just goes, just try to understand, just yeah. try to understand mm. this person and their choices and their situation. Um, and I think that that's really valuable stuff that um, that D and D and and tabletop RPGs are such a, an incredible vehicle for. Um, that I mean, if we uh, if we specifically are talking about like teaching kids, <laughs> it's maybe a little advanced. But <laughs> adults learn. Adults learn things, and I think that's one of the things that uh, that D and D can teach. Just just as simple as taking turns, listening to others when you aren't the one who's speaking. Those lessons are just as important as any you know, sort of empathy lessons that we could get through stories. And some mm-hmm. adults could uh, <laughs> could benefit from uh, those sorts of lessons uh, in, in, in our world. So, you know, just, just that the cooperative nature of gaming itself is just as valuable as anything. I think uh, the benefit of role-playing games and performing arts, um, you know, if, if you have uh, children that are interested in going to drama school or just going to, you know, after-school kind of drama classes and things like that, is it gives children uh, and teenagers especially um, an opportunity to try on different clothes. Um, in ter- I don't mean literally clothes. I mean like... Although sometimes... Although sometimes if they're in costume, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I mean like, you know, they try on different personalities like their clothes. You know, they uh, somebody who tries Dungeons and Dragons who might come from a really athletic family and this is a complete hypothetical... But, you know, through playing a wizard in D&D are like, well, actually, I love this concept of somebody who studies and somebody who, you know, and that's something they may not have been exposed to earlier or somebody who, you know, plays a rogue and it doesn't turn them into a thief criminal, but it teaches them, you know, (laughs) I like puzzles. I like figuring out how to solve problems. And so, you know, I want to uh, continue to pursue opportunities to do that in, in the different avenues that I take in life, whether it's professional or leisure or whatever it happens to be. So it gives children an opportunity to to explore their own, what, what they think about themselves and their place within the world itself. Um, and it doesn't have to be didactic. It doesn't have to be like, what did you think about yourself after playing this role-playing game? What it's did just we a, learn today? Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, just uh, I think there was a, a term that you coined earlier on, Dale, and I can't remember what it was directly in reference to, but- I enjoyed the term, which was reckless empathy, um, which I have interpreted as being, you know, sort of just not judging uh, the empathy for a character or for a person, but just, you know, seeing what it feels like to live in uh, the clothes of a person who is 
the way that that person is for a while. Um, yeah, absolutely. And role-playing games are such a perfect medium for reckless empathy, even better than just straight-up fiction. Yeah. Because you truly are in the shoes of this person. Uh, and and you suddenly start to realize how you would adapt to a situation like that in real life. Because often it can be dangerous to be that empathetic in real life. You could get overly sure. invested or someone could hurt you or sure. you, know, you could be lied to. But in uh, a relatively very safe setting like this, it's perfect. Speaking of social settings, uh, we have an email that has come from Arthur uh, and Arthur was talking about, let me just quickly find this email. Um, last Thursday, Arthur's wife had to hold off watching the season two of Bridgerton because he was off playing D&D &D and couldn't let them watch the show without Arthur, but had them thinking, uh, would a D uh, sorry, would a Bridgerton style courting role-playing game be something that would interest us? Uh, is it something that we've experienced before? How would you adapt the systems in Dungeons and Dragons uh, to uh, kind of work within this purely social environment? Which had me thinking, could you run D&D &D in a Jane Austen, Bridgerton style setting, but it's almost like uh, Sense and Sensibility and Zombies or um, what is it? Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, I think is the actual mm -hmm. book. Um, does this yeah, setting attract any of us? Sea monsters. Sorry, that's right. My bad. Uh, <laughs> I get the, the I get the two yeah. confused so easily. Sea monsters and zombies. It's just so easy to confuse the two of those things. Um, I highly recommend Good Society, a role playing <laughs> game designed specifically for this genre of story. Um, I'm sure you could do something like it in D and D, especially if you went the sort of Pride and Prejudice and Zombies route. I feel like a broken record saying stuff like this. D and D's focus isn't on the sort of narrative beats that that a story like that wants. A game like Good Society puts its mechanics into the you know the narrative cubbyholes that suit a Jane Austen or Bridgerton like story. Which is great. I mean, because here's, here's the thing, is that I think that there absolutely would be room for D&D to do that sort of a thing, but it would need mm -hmm. a lot of additional structure put into the social pillar and the mm -hmm. role-playing pillar of the game, uh, which currently, in my personal opinion, just isn't really there. Um, you know, there are tools for running those things, but the, um, the sort of the, the real scaffolding that you can play with uh, that exists for something like combat within D&D kind of isn't there for, um, for, you know, social play and these kind of, you know, high politic, uh, you know, important conversations, um, which something like Good Society, which Story Brewer is great because they, they come at each new genre with, you know, mechanics that are designed for that genre. Mm. And that's that's really, really cool stuff. Because, you know, it's, I, I think about uh, Dragon Age Inquisition, one of my favorite missions in that, that entire game is when you go to the Winter Palace and you have to, like, schmooze with the upper crust. And it's just <laughs> such a breath of fresh air. It's like, oh, I get to go to a party. And it's, it's this wonderful, you know, uh, deviation from the norm, which is combat. Uh, and even in that setting, in that game, because it is a combat game and all your abilities are combat abilities, they have you do a bunch of fighting in the middle of it. And every time one of those fights starts, I'm like, come on, let me get back to the, let me get back to the social stuff. And that's for a video game which actually has a very robust social interaction system. Yeah. So imagine trying to do that in a tabletop RPG where you're dealing with the complications of people literally speaking on behalf of their characters. 
And so what do you do then when you've got, you know, maybe a difference between the thing that someone can come up with on the fly as a person in the real world versus their character who has a 20 charisma? Um, you know, you've got this this kind of dissonance that exists there already, plus a lack of scaffolding to play on, which just makes it difficult. But, oh, I, I think it would be worthwhile for, for Wizards of the Coast to put in a bunch of work onto really making a robust sort of social... Uh, social mini game the way that combat has a mini game because yeah. I love that stuff I eat that stuff up mm-hmm. my my problem with that stuff and I don't have a lot of experience with it but this kind of leans into um, a conversation I was having with Sean earlier today before we were recording about the level of crunch in a role-playing game because as we've discussed 5e is notoriously non-crunchy and there's not a lot of scaffolding around social interactions in particular I'm currently reading through the infinity role-playing game by Modiphius and they've um they have like a type of damage that you can take, which is basically, I can't remember the word they use for it, but uh, it's more or less like psychic damage. And if you run out of it, then your character has the potential to start panicking or start to, you know, have some other negative effect applied to them. I know that the Witcher role-playing game, bam, uh, has social combat, which plays out like a combat encounter And my problem with that uh, uh, in the way that I specifically run the game is I invest myself in the the reality of the NPCs that, you know, I role play them really fully. You can't convince, you know, do you have deception checks between player characters or persuasion checks maybe more, more specifically between player characters? Typically, no, because the players get to decide for themselves whether they're convinced by an argument or not. And that's often the way that I'll play uh, NPCs until I reach a point where I'm like, oh, the character could go either way on this, make a persuasion check or a deception check or whatever it happens to be. So I feel like stronger scaffolding around social checks creates this dissonance for me personally where it almost feels like mind control that the party can exert over uh, the NPCs. But on the flip side, when talking about tone, I'm often frustrated when the players, you know, we talked, was it earlier this this episode or last week, um, about uh, players uh, accepting rough experiences that their characters have gone through and how they deal with those crazy rough experiences that have, you know, made them reflective on, on you know, whatever it happens to be. You you were talking, James, specifically about uh, the, the experience with gibbering mouthers in Call of the Netherdeep. And players often just shrug it off. They're like, oh, I'm a hero. I'm not affected by any of this sort of stuff that's happening around me. And so having a mechanic that would enforce a level of the characters being affected by their experiences attracts me kind of on the flip side of things. So um, I don't know, from from the three of you who I assume have had more experience with these sort of more crunchy mechanical um, social uh, rules, what's good about them? What, what do you enjoy about them? Well- The one thing that I would say is that I don't think that the scaffolding has to necessarily look like, at the moment, the the system that is in place for social rules in D&D specifically tends to be roll a d20 plus bonus for persuasion. You succeeded? Okay, great. Well, then they've been convinced, right? Mm. But when we talk about this sort of, or when I talk about this, uh, this sort of scaffolding, this mini game, a good place to start that I think a lot of people do start when they start implementing this sort of thing is they reflect combat, right? Because when you roll an attack with your sword, if you succeed, you don't just kill the guy. 
it's it's like there's all these other things in place. You've got hit points. You've got all this stuff. It's it's not just oh you succeeded so therefore it's done. Um, and you can implement something very similar to that in a social setting. You can have you know social hit points, and you know someone might have a very strong stance. And if you want to convince them to do something else, you have to wear down their hit points with your persuasion checks or your deception checks or what have you in mm. order to get to that point. We've all here heard of a game called Fate Accelerated. I know because we played it. And what's great about that game in social situations is that you don't have strength, dexterity, constitution. You have approaches, right? Sneaky. Yes. Uh, yeah, flashy, careful. All of those things equate equally to combat and to social situations. You can be forceful socially. You can be sneaky socially. There are not hit points in that game. There is stress and consequences. That stress can mean anything. That stress could count down your social stress. And if you run out, the consequences are not broken leg. The consequences are, uh, you know, uh, laughed at in court or any of those things. Mm. So there are other games. <laughs> my that, nightmare. Uh, <laughs> yes. The, my, Uninvited my life. to the party. Uh, <laughs> right. So, you know, the uh, there are other games, not even ones that are specifically made for social play, even though those are wonderful. But you can take these uh, games that are, are more uh, templated to move in different directions and use that. Uh, fate points work just as well for social combats as for uh as for physical combats, you know, it's the storytelling setup is all there for you. You can still use it. Oh no, I had a thought. Now it's gone. It's <laughs> gone forever. Oh no. Uh, it was something that Sean said about fate, which was all of it. So that doesn't help. Uh, <laughs> you were saying approaches. that approaches, uh, no, nobody no. help her. Nobody Stress. help her. No, <laughs> if I have to go through it. Me. Consequences. <laughs> Consequences. I mean, here's, he, yeah, here's a different thing that I'll say is that um, I think, oh, no, no, it's gone. It's catching. This is terrible. Just Dale leave me to just die. Taking, just taking mental damage repeatedly. This is it. This is me failing my social situation this is oh I, i've got it i've got it, i've got it uh, one of the things that you said made me think of <laughs> dante so you leave that in you leave all of <laughs> no! that in dale say the words <laughs> it was thinking about um games that let you apply core attributes if you're using a game that has skills and attributes that are separate i love it when they let you use a different uh attribute for a skill that ordinarily you wouldn't associate with it yeah. um you know the the go-to example is people who want to use strength to intimidate someone yeah. that's mm. great i love that stuff and that's you know really simple things that you can take from a game like fate and just apply just the tiny little sprinkling of the concept onto uh onto dnd and already start seeing these kind of uh, changes in how the system works. What was the second thing I was going to say? We'll never know. Who here hasn't intimidated someone with intelligence? Come on now. <laughs> Come on now. I I actually haven't seen that in one of my games, but I can see like a, a, an almost Raymond Reddington kind of, you know, long, illustrious monologue that makes everybody else in the room seem a little bit or feel a little bit stupider uh, <laughs> as a result. 
Um, yeah, no, I love mixing ability scores with with skills, you know, doing a charisma stealth check to be able to Assassin's Creed style blend into a yeah. crowd or um, do a intelligence animal handling check to maybe make or a charisma anima, animal handling to make like a bird call um, or something like that. You know, getting creative yeah. with that is um, is a lot of fun. Is that actually, I don't know if that's featured anywhere in the rules though. Is that in the DMG or is that just something that people kind of know? They it's a can- variant rule in the player's handbook. Yes, that makes sense. Because I remember for for the longest time, I thought it was actually a core rule. Mm. <laughs> I was like, why do they always put the the attribute next to the skill? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a good in, way to in shake one it of up. the playtests, D and D next playtests, it was specifically stated, we are not going to give you attributes and skills combined. You just use your best judgment about what should apply. And I went, thank you. Thank you, D&D gods. And then in the final version, they... And then they, they uh, took it away from you. They that, took it away. They why do you think away. that is? Was that simplification? Well, I think that players want to control their characters completely. They don't want this sort of wishy-washy DM tells me how to play my character. They want to know specifically that when they make that animal handling check that they can count on it being wisdom instead of intelligence. They want to know that that when they, they do it because they want to min max their character to be best at what they do. And they don't want to be told otherwise. There is the problem with trying to do that, like floating ability scores against the skills is oftentimes I'll abandon doing it within a campaign because pretty quickly I'll realize that it's actually not beneficial for the player characters. You know, like strength intimidation is an example of where it works really well. But if I ask for a charisma stealth check from a rogue and they haven't put anything into stealth, it's all in intelligence because they're an arcane trickster or something. It's like, well, that's not helpful for me. Can I just make See, it dexterity? I like putting it in the hands of the players. I like saying, well, this is going to be an animal handling check, but what, you know, attribute do you want to use for it? And if they can find a way now to explain this... to me how it works, great. Mm-hmm. Dale, this is the crux of my argument. I think I know why they made it like this is because there is no such thing as a skill check in 5th edition. Yeah. <laughs> there are only Ooh, ability checks ability which are modified checks, by you're skills. Right. You're right. Yeah, yeah. This this strikes me as sort of a, a, a half, one half simplification, one half sort of editorial sort of... There, there was an editor, probably Jeremy Crawford, I think, who was very laser-focused <laughs> <who> we blame. <laughs> on one editorial decision. I, I shouldn't blame Jeremy for this. I'm not even blaming him. <laughs> Crawford! There, there's, a, there's a sort of editorial consistency that I, can, that I can see Jeremy really getting into when it comes to something like this. And yeah, it's fair. a remnant of previous editions, and you know, people get used to playing it a certain way. That's where their mind instantly goes to. Uh, they don't want that change. They want it the way it's always been. So... Mm-hmm. I don't blame the editors for doing what they did, for sure. I do. <laughs> <laughs> Good cup, bad cup, right now. <laughs> well, speaking of change, it's time to change our state into not recording a podcast anymore because that's that all really we well. that's all we have time for this week on the Eldritch Lawcast. Uh, once again, you can email podcast at ghostfiregaming.com if you want to ask us a question, give us a topic to chew on, or leave a comment if you're listening to this on YouTube down in the comment section. Uh, we go through them and pick out some to put to the panel of experts. Uh, that's what I'm calling you from now on. Um, 
Spread the word. The Eldritch Lawcast is here every week. Uh, leave a rating if you're listening on Spotify or iTunes. And otherwise, we will see you once again next week.